Uh, it was a nice night, and so we sat out on the beach, and we enjoyed the sunset and our picnic. And we were, when we were done of our tacos, we left our wives to have girl time and, you know, to do whatever they wanted to do. And we walked over to the skate park, it was just a few feet away. And um, when we got there, it was like everyone who was 13 years old and was like incredible at skateboarding was there. They were like amazing. And so uh, I was feeling a little bit unsure. It had been many years since I had skateboarded. And, um, you know, I was like just taking it easy. But it was one of those evenings where like everything was perfect. Like we were sitting there and, and skating around and we could hear the ocean. We could hear people like laughing and having a good time. There a beautiful like it was a beautiful sunny day. And um, so so we're enjoying this this time and we're just skating around. And um, about 20 minutes in. I go up a ramp, I get to the top of it, and my body does this very interesting thing that I wasn't used to where it just smashed into the concrete and I felt pain instantly. And, and things went from the best of times to the worst of times really, really quick. And now the, the fall was clearly my fault, okay? Um, uh, my, I wasn't as crisp and as dialed as I once was, and uh, my skateboarding skills had flown out the window a long, long time ago. Uh, I would say that my skateboarding skills were dead. They no longer existed. They were, you know, a distant memory from a previous life. My skateboarding skills were dead. Sometimes in life, things like skateboarding skills die. And James here this morning writes to a faith community and says to them in verse 26 that faith without deeds is dead. He also says in verse 17 that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what do you do if, if you're not sure if your faith is dead or alive? How do you know your faith is alive? Or better yet, how do you know your faith is real, that it's alive and well? And James, what he's going to do is unpack for us what it looks like to have a genuine faith, a living faith, a faith in his words that actually saves. So if you're unsure, if you want to know if your faith is alive, if your faith is real, if your faith can save, James points out to us, number one, that a faith that is alive and well is a faith that is in Jesus. You can know you have real faith if your faith is in Jesus. See, James, uh, the author of this, this passage for us this morning, had a faith, come to faith moment. There was a moment in, in James's life where he put his faith in Jesus because James, I don't know if you know this or not, James was not a devoted follower of Jesus. James was the opposite of a follower of Jesus. See, James grew up being the little brother of Jesus. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine growing up being the younger brother of Jesus. Like the bar is high. Like how many times did he hear, why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you just do it like Jesus does it? Why can't you be as smart as Jesus is? That's his existence, right? And he, he would have lived in the shadow of his perfect older brother. Maybe you have an older sibling and they're like better at sports or they're better at school or, you know, whatever it was. And, and James is living in the shadow of Jesus. He's got nothing on Jesus, right? Like the, probably the only thing he's got on Jesus is the one time Jesus maybe, you know, walked on water when they were kids in the tub, right? Like he's got nothing on Jesus. And, and imagine being the younger brother to Jesus. And one day your brother comes to you and says, hey, I'm God. And you're like, bro, I've seen you naked like a thousand times. There's no way you are God, right? You, 
If you were James, you would think he's out of his mind. There's no way you're God, Jesus. See, James would have thought that his brother was crazy. James would have thought that his brother had, had gone off the deep end with this whole son of God thing. See, in fact, it says in John chapter 7, verse 5, that, quote, even his own brothers did not believe in him. There was no way James was buying into this. You're God. You're the son of God. This is nonsense. Until one day, everything changed for James. See, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and to James. And in Acts chapter 1, we find James in the upper room with the other disciples praying, seeking the face of God, and waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. What happened from, from John chapter 5, verse 7, verse 5, where even his own brothers didn't believe until we find James in the upper room seeking the face of his older brother, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. James had a come to faith moment. And, and this come to faith moment changed everything for James. And we see it in James chapter one, verse one. He writes this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. See, James' faith wasn't just in God. His faith was in Jesus. Everything changed for James when he put his faith in Jesus. My question for some of you this morning is, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted him? Have you made a decision to follow Jesus? And what I'm, what I'm referring to is not a faith in a decision, not a faith in a moment, not a faith in a prayer, but a faith in Jesus himself. Because so many Christians, if you were to ask them, how do you know you're a follower of Jesus? How do you know you're a Christian? They will tell you the exact time and place that they said a magical prayer found nowhere in the pages of the Bible. That they will tell you about a prayer that they prayed. But my question for you is, is your faith in Jesus, not in a decision for Jesus? See, your faith has got to be in Jesus. Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that he really loves you? He loves you not as you should be, but he loves you as you are. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Do you know that he loves you in all of your sin and mess? And do you know that he died to put an end to your every sin on the cross, past, present, and future? Because for, for years, James thought his brother was out of his mind, but something happened when he saw the scars in his hands. Something happened when he looked at his brother back from the dead and he saw the love in his eyes. Something happened when he realized the lengths that Jesus was willing to go to demonstrate his love for him. And so some of us are like James and we won't put our face in Jesus, at least not yet. But at some point, you've got to pull the trigger and make a decision. At some point, you've got to cross the threshold and make a decision to follow Jesus. So how do you know your faith is real? How do you know you have a real living faith that can actually save? Well, number one, according to James, you can know your faith is real if it's in Jesus. You can also know if your faith is real in addition to that, if your faith leads to action. James writes in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and my sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? The obvious answer is no. In the same way, faith by itself, it is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, the foundation of the Jewish faith 
was the confession that God is one. This is referred to in the Old Testament as the Shema. And Jews would pray the Shema or recite the Shema up to five times a day. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And James here is saying, that's nice that you recite the Shema. It's nice that you believe that there is one God. That is the foundational principle of the Jewish faith. I understand that you believe that, but even demons believe that. In other words, simply saying that God is one, simply understanding theologically who God is, isn't enough. That belief has to be evident from your life. Faith needs to move you to action if it is real. Scott McKnight writes on this passage, he says, quote, faith for James cannot be reduced to trust or creedal orthodoxy. Faith for James flowers into full-blown acts of mercy toward the poor and marginalized, or it is not saving faith. See, even the demons believe that God is one. They understand the theological principle that there is one God, but it is not enough to verbally understand or even verbally confess that. See, true faith is living like it's actually true. So last week, um, Laurel and I and a few others, we headed down to Arizona for a wedding for three days. And um, we were flying out of Bellingham to Arizona. And so we had to cross the border to get there. And if, you, you, if you've done that before, you know the pain. And so we checked the website the morning before we were going to go. And the website said 20 minute wait. And we're like, this is great. We'll just like fly through. It's a Thursday morning. It'll be no problem. Well, when we got there, it, things were moving incredibly slow, right? You know the pain. And so we're just like, oh my goodness, this is going to take forever. And what was supposed to be a 20-minute wait was like two hours and, and, you know, some odd change for us to get through the border. We ended up missing our flight and we had to like fly to Vegas and drive. It was a whole thing. But my point is, it doesn't matter what the border wait said. What mattered is what, the ac- what actually happened. See, what the website said didn't help us catch our flight. The website saying 20 minutes didn't change the fact that it was a two-hour border wait. And, you know, there's often a huge gap between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. See, faith is living like what you believe is true. I'm going to say that one more time for those note takers who like a definition of faith. Here's my definition of faith. Faith is living like what you believe is true. There is no biblical definition of faith that is just a cognitive understanding of a reality. Faith, according to the biblical authors, it comes from a Greek word, pistis. It can mean faithfulness to or allegiance to or trust in. Faith is always an action word, and it means to live like what you believe is true. So last summer, my wife and I were in Greece, and uh, we were on this one island in Greece. And so we decided to rent an ATV and just kind of rip around the island for the day. It was, it was a ton of fun. So we kind of just went like beach hopping. And uh, we went to this one beach and there was this like big cliff. I would say it's huge, but like probably wasn't as big as I remember. But there was like this big cliff. And I was like, I'm going to jump from like the highest point into the water. It's going to be fun. And so we decided to like do a little bit of cliff jumping. And so I tell my wife, okay, I'm going to jump from like right over here. And uh, when I get up to the ledge and I look down, I'm like, oh my goodness, there's no way I'm going to do this. Like I totally just like froze. Right. And I'm like, oh man, I don't think I can do this. And um, I realized in that moment It doesn't matter what I told Laurel. It doesn't matter what I said. If I don't actually jump, it's because I don't believe I can make it. And so I I jumped. Um, 
But this is what James is saying. He's saying if your faith doesn't have any follow through, it's dead. It's no good. It's not real. And that kind of faith, according to James, cannot save. It's not real because faith is living like what you believe is actually true. Biblical faith always leads to action. You know, I think we're scared to take the jump. I think we're scared to take the leap or the plunge because we're not sure if Jesus is truly worth it. Man, Jesus might demand something of me. Jesus might ask something of me. This might be difficult or hard, and and it might be. But I think deep down, we're not sure if Jesus is really as good as we think he is. And whether we jump or not reveals what we truly believe. On a similar note, Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Did you catch what Jesus is saying? In verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Jesus is contrasting saying and doing. Saying Lord, Lord is like having good theology. It's understanding who God is. And so what, what he's saying is it's not, it's not just knowing the right stuff about Jesus because Jesus will look at some who have really good theology and know that he died, was buried, and rose again. He will look at people who understand and have, you know, just like a bulletproof atonement theory. And he will look at them and say, I never knew you. I never knew you. See, Jesus says it's not enough to say, Lord, Lord, you've got to do the will of my Father. Now, for the last three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has made it very clear what the will of the Father is. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has laid out that the will of the Father is to love your neighbor, enemy love, and care for the poor. And so he says, it is those who do the will of the Father who are those who truly believe. See, Jesus says you can prophesy, you can drive out demons, you can perform miracles, and it doesn't make a difference to your eternal destiny. The question is, do you know him? Do you really know him? See, according to James and to Jesus, you can tell if you know him, you can tell if your faith is real by the way you live your life. The litmus test for true faith is not your theology, it's your life. Your life reveals what you truly believe and who you truly worship. Um, so recently, um, just confession time, I've been listening to the Tony Hawk podcast. It's amazing, okay? Um, and it's super interesting to listen to one of the like world's greatest skateboarders of all time, right? And he's just like talking about like sobriety and life and his kids and all these different topics. And he has these like incredible like people on his podcast. And like, I grew up like playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater. I grew up like seeing him do like the 900, like, and it's so cool to listen to his podcast. But if I came up to you and I started telling you about my friend, Tony, hey, like, have, you, have I told you about my friend, Tony? You'd be like, do you even know him? Like, like you're, you're talking like you know him. And I'd be like, of course I know him. I listened to his podcast. I know all about him. And you know, as crazy as this sounds, I think this is how many of us are following Jesus. I know Jesus. I've read his book. I've listened to some sermons about Jesus. 
I know some stuff about Jesus. My theology is bulletproof. But there is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing him. See, some of us know about Jesus. We can quote the Bible and we know some stuff about him, but we don't actually know him. And you might be sitting here and you know the lingo, you know the language, you know the game, but you don't actually know him. Do we live like it? Or is this just an idea in our head? Is this just a distant memory of some things we learned in Sunday school? Because Jesus will look at some of us who confess that Jesus is Lord and say, I never knew you. So do you know him? Do you actually know him? So you can know if your faith is real, if your faith is in Jesus. You can also know if your faith is real, if it leads you to action. But third, you can know if your faith is real, if it transforms your life. Your faith is real if it transforms your life. According to James, true saving faith will transform your life. And this is good news for us this morning. He says, he says this, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. See, when James says, show me your faith without your, your deeds, it's like saying, show, tell me how the water is without getting wet. Or, or like, tell me how smart you truly are without using words, right? Like this is something that's practically impossible to do. Faith, if it's real, will express itself through love. Faith, if it's real, will produce works in your life. See, this is what Paul says when, in Galatians 6, 5, when he says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. See, for Paul, the way that you know that you have faith is that it works its way into your life as acts of love. He also wrote to the church in Corinth and said, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. See, in other words, it doesn't do you any good just to believe some things or to have an incredible amount of faith that can move mountains if it doesn't produce love in your life. That's what James means when he says that faith without deeds is dead. So James writes this in verse 14. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So James is not saying that we earn our salvation by our works, but what he is saying is that we show our faith by our works. See, works expose the kind of faith that we actually have, either a dead faith or an alive faith. See, for instance, God has all the money that he needs to accomplish what he wants to do. Can I get an amen? Okay. God has all of the resources that he needs. The Old Testament tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is not lacking anything. So I'll say that again. God has all of the money that he needs to do what he wants to do, but it's in your pocket. Your giving or your lack of giving reveals what you truly believe about God's generosity. See, people out there need to hear the good news about Jesus, right? We believe this. But our evangelism or our lack of evangelism reveals to us what we truly believe about God. 
So your brothers and sisters need somebody to encourage them and build up their faith. But our engagement or lack of engagement in community reveals what we truly believe about a communal God. See, there are people with real literal needs and our practical love for them reveals what we truly believe. See, to profess faith without demonstrating faith, according to James, is an illusion and is a faith that cannot save. You are saved by faith alone in Jesus, but a faith that saves is never alone. Your works do not save you, but they reveal what kind of faith you truly have. And so James here defines true religion for us not as right belief, but he defines it as a transformed life expressed through acts of love. He says this in James 1, 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, according to James, this is what following Jesus is all about. See, it's easy to read a book or listen to a sermon or a podcast about following Jesus rather than following Jesus itself. But according to James, conservative theology doesn't move the needle an inch if it doesn't move your life to action and love for the poor and marginalized. Again, to quote Scott McKnight, faith for James cannot be reduced to trust or creedal orthodoxy. Faith for James flowers into full-blown acts of mercy toward the poor and marginalized, or it is not saving faith. In other words, true faith always leads to a transformed life. Now, what James is about to do is give us two examples of what real faith really looks like. The first example that he gives us is a guy named Abraham, okay? And so Abraham was one of the greatest heroes in the Jewish faith. He's one of the, the, the most incredible examples of a man of God in the Old Testament. He is the pinnacle example of somebody who faithfully followed Yahweh. And James writes this in verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? If that's weird to you, just wait a second, I'll get into it. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, every Protestant just got really uncomfortable. Welcome to church. Um, Okay, so Abraham and his wife um, are in their 90s. Okay, and God comes to them and says, hey, guys, I know you're really old, but I'm going to give you guys a baby. You're going to get pregnant in nine months and it's going to be great. And I don't know if you know any 90-year-olds, but uh, they don't really have like the greatest birthing hips, okay? So um, these are not the prime candidates for having a baby, right? Old Abe and old Sarah, right? And God comes to them and says, you're going to have a baby in nine months. It's going to be awesome. And they're like, this is going to be wild. And um, they get pregnant and they have a son at like 99. And, um, And then there's this weird twist in the story where God comes to Abraham to test to see if he's really with him or not. And he asks Abraham to do one of the most horrific things that you can think about. He asks Abraham to sacrifice his own child. Now, this sounds crazy to us in the modern West, and it should. But in the ancient Near East, this was a common thing that the gods would require of their worshipers. In the ancient Near East, the gods of uh, the Eastern world would ask their people to sacrifice their children for things like crops and blessing and, and prosperity. 
And so Abraham is not bothered in this. What we need to understand is, is Abraham is not steeped in the tradition of Israel because there isn't one yet. He is steeped in the, the world and religion of the pagan ancient Near East. And so he just goes along with it. And so what he does is he trusts that God will resurrect his son because he knows that there's something different about Yahweh. Yahweh is not like Baal. Yahweh is generous, kind. He is he, God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for generations. And so he knows that this good God will resurrect his son. But what God is doing is he is showing to Abraham, Abraham, I am nothing like the gods of the ancient Near East. I am nothing like Baal. And rather than asking you to sacrifice your child, I, will sa- I would rather sacrifice myself. I would rather spill my blood than to ask you to spill your blood. And so he offers a ram instead. See, what, what we see in the story of Abraham is a God who would rather lay down his own life for his people. So James's point is this, that his faith wasn't pr- proven by what he said or what he thought. Abraham's faith was proven by what he did. And so the audience who's listening to James' uh, sermon here would have thought, well, Abraham's kind of an exception. Like he's kind of like the father of our faith, father Abraham, I had many sons, like I get this whole thing. He, of course, like his faith is well beyond ours. And so James gives us the total opposite example, a pagan prostitute. How's that for an example of faith, okay? Uh, James writes this in verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she said, what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So here's this this pagan prostitute. She, she's not a follower of Yahweh, and she's living in the city of Jericho. And my guess is she's probably not theologically informed. Like she probably doesn't have a Bible college in her hometown. She's probably not like hooked up with like, you know, the Bethmore Bible Bible study series. And against all odds, with all of that working against her favor, she shows or demonstrates her faith is in God by what she does, by protecting and giving lodging to these Jewish spies on her roof. And so James's point is simple and it is clear. Both Abraham and Rahab were put to the test and their faith produced works. See, James is not saying that good works save us. James is not saying that we earn our status from God. James is not saying that we earn our standing with God or with Jesus. He is saying that our actions reveal what we truly believe about God. So what's the application? Try harder, work harder, do more, believe more, build yourself up, prove yourself to God. No. You know, my dad was an alcoholic fisherman when I was young. And um, I think he was just trying to do his best um, when we were kids and was working really hard and had a lot of stuff that he hadn't dealt with. But there were some fishermen that he met when I was about seven or eight years old that totally rocked his world. And he wanted to know what, what it was all about. So he ended up going to church with them. At the end of that service, he gave his life to Jesus. But all I remembered as a young boy was my dad coming home that night and pouring out every bottle of alcohol. And my dad was totally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But my dad was not perfect. I remember probably just a few months later, my dad took my sisters and I to like a carnival and he ended up like squaring up with this dude, right? Like just like going at it. And my dad was not perfect, but he was transformed. He wasn't the same. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter six, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor 
idolaters or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor sw swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm just exhausted after reading that list, right? It's like intense. But he says this in verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. His point is that's not who you are anymore. Your identity is not sinner. Your identity is not disaster. It's, it's not a mess up. Your, your identity is not sinner. Your identity, because of what Jesus has done, is forgiven. It's loved. It's made whole. It's made holy. Every un imperfect thing about you has been made untrue because of the cross of Christ. And now you stand before God loved and holy, and your identity is child, is loved. And the father looks down on his children this morning and he loves you. But you think, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to make myself holy. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to prove myself to God. You know, when I was at the skate park the other week with um, Quinn, my phone got stolen. Okay. I know it's super stereotypical, but it did. And um, Quinn saw these two guys at the other end of the skate park, just like fighting over my phone. And um, Quinn skates over. He's like, hey, that's not yours. And then he said some other stuff that made me think that maybe he has the gift of tongues. But um, <laughs> the crazy thing is these kids were fighting so hard to keep something that wasn't theirs. They were fighting so hard to, to keep something that they wouldn't be able to hold on to in the end. And so many of us are going to church. We're doing the Christian thing. We're doing all the things. We're, we're paying penance and we're praying and we're, and we're doing all the stuff we think will move the heart of God. But you can't do anything to earn God's love. You can't do anything to make God love you any more than he already does. You simply have to receive his love. Because who you are at the deepest level is a child. God made you in his image and he can't help himself but love you. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ compels us. You need to know that you are loved by God because that is what will move you to faith. That is what will compel you to live out your faith in action. See, God's love is for the broken it's for the burnt out and for those who are distant from God. God's love is for those who feel like their life is a total disappointment to God. God's love is for the beat up, it's for the outcast, it's for the sinner. And God's not looking for your works. God's not looking for your striving and your penance and your proving yourself. He's looking for you to truly believe that at the fundamental level of who you are, that you are loved by a heavenly father that you are not a disappointment to God. He is looking for those who will with conviction and faith like Abraham and the prostitute Rahab believe at the core of who they are, that they are loved by God. And we can know this because he demonstrated his love for us on the cross. This is what God is looking for. And this is what will transform your life. So the message this morning is not try harder. The message this morning is not believe more, make your faith, you know, and work it up. The message this morning is receive God's love for you because this is what will transform your life. This is what will lead to, to life and flourishing. This is what faith is. And it comes from being loved by God. So let this morning God's love erupt in your heart 
and produce true, genuine, saving faith. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, your word tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that one of the things that you do is that you pour the love of the Father into our hearts. And so God, I pray that we would not just understand your love for us, but we would know it, we would experience it, and we would be transformed by it. God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them by your love, your grace, and your goodness to know that you are worth any cost. That like Jim Elliott, they would know that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God, we welcome your presence here this morning. We welcome your love and your goodness. And for those who are discouraged and feel like they have small faith, I pray that we would take courage in the words of Jesus, that he's just looking for the faith the size of a mustard seed. And I pray that you would take that seed and by your love, you would water it and grow it and produce a life of faith within us. So Jesus, we honor you and your presence this morning. And we pray for fathers that they would leave a legacy of faith to their children, to the third and fourth generation. We pray that we would be known as a people of faith marked by your love. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.